The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at TNTradio.live. Rick Munn is locked and loaded on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Okay, uh, thank you for staying tuned to the one and only, the mighty, the marvelous, the incredible, the wonderful, the stupendous TNT Radio, which stands for today's News Talk Radio. And of course, today we are going to talk about the news and it's all wonderful and it's all good. And we're doing just fine so far, I believe, given there's been a lot of last minute scheduling changes to both the Open Line Show and to the Locked and Loaded Show, but let it be used as a way for us to shine and let our consummate professionalism seep through the airwaves and into your listening device of choice. Yes, the show must go on here at TNT, no matter what. That's how we roll. Uh, Gemma is going to be joining me again in a minute. Uh, she has got a great story to cover off with us here for the news editorial. And then at the drop of a hat, just at the last minute, stepping into the breach, stepping into the gap, standing in the gap, we have a chap by the name of Joseph Robertson will be joining me at 20 past the hour. Joseph is a friend of the one and only Dee Dee Denslow and he is an Epoch Times reporter. So what are we going to talk about? That is a damn good question. Just about whatever we feel like is the answer. If you have any suggestions, please feel free to leave them in the live chat and we shall see how we get on at 20 past the hour when Joseph uh, beams in to TNT Towers. Now, uh, a little bit of humour here uh, concerning the Irish police force. Uh, this is an actual real story. Waste of resources is claimed as the Irish police have a canine unit for dogs with no dogs in it. Okay, so there's two sergeants in this dog unit, but they don't have any dogs uh, to actually look after. So two guardie were appointed eight months, 18 months ago to head up a dog unit in County Galway, and they still have no animals to work with. <laughs> so in July last year, two men were appointed by the Irish Police Force and Garda Shikana to uh, head up a dog unit and they still haven't got any dogs for them. Can you believe it? Can you imagine you get on the phone, you say, we need the dog unit and the dog unit arrives, but it's just two men. There's no animals there because they can't get the dogs for the Irish police force. You know, the, the, the Irish do get a lot of ridicule and have got a lot of ridicule over the years for being uh, allegedly a somewhat backward race. And I, I, I don't agree with that, of course, but stories like this <laughs> do little to dispel that myth. So Irish police force dog unit with no dogs. That's uh, what we're dealing with here in Ireland at the minute. Uh, what else is happening at the moment at the minute? Well, State spending, just some figures for you as well, because it's good to keep up to date figures rather than just, uh, you know, projections and whatnot. State spending of 1.88 million euro per day on accommodation for international protection applicants again in Ireland. That's only over 650 million euro per year to house foreigners, while in excess of 10,000 indigenous people, this chap said. Uh, as in native Irish people, are left without a place to call home. I understand that figure is now pushing up towards the 12,000 mark, which is uh, equally disturbing. So it's not just 10,000 people, it's nearly 12,000 now, while the government spaffs away 650 million pounds of Irish taxpayers' money, housing uh, and international so-called protection applications. So that's another actual figure that's up to date uh, with regards to the Irish spending situation. Uh, another chap, uh, psychopath, who was jailed 
for murdering the Irish lady Aisling Murphy. Uh, Joseph Puska has complained after being given a mattress on the floor of a shared cell in a prison. Uh, he originally protested he was going to a certain prison. He said, I'll be killed if I go there. So they sent him somewhere else. Uh, within 80 minutes of threatening to call in his lawyers, Puska was moved back to his single occupancy cell in Midlands Prison. So uh, the 33-year-old murderer uh, who came here some years ago, never contributed to uh, the Irish economy, never worked, uh, didn't really learn how to speak any English, did nothing, was here with his family, murdered, brutalised, savagely massacred Aisling Murphy, stabbed her in the neck 11 times. He's now being locked up again at Irish taxpayers' expense. Uh, was moved from a single occupancy cell on a, on a landing reserved for inmates with mental health issues to another block, but had to sleep on the floor with two other men in a bunk. So he didn't like that. He thought he was being uh, discriminated against. So he threatened his lawyers. And now the Irish prison service have moved him back into a single occupancy cell. I just... Um, speechless well obviously i'm not but metaphorically speechless at what people get away with if you're a criminal in ireland you are treated better than someone who keeps the law honestly if you are uh, indulging in child pornography you'll get a suspended sentence if you're standing up uh, as in the case of enoch burke who's a teacher who refused to accept uh, a student's preferred gender pronouns and went back to his place of work he said i'm not being sacked i shouldn't lose my job over this he's in uh, prison mountjoy prison for contempt of court. He's spent over 200 days there in the last uh, 12 months because he simply refuses to accept this. So people like him are locked up. In Mountjoy, people like Pushka, who stabbed Isling Murphy in the neck 11 times, has been transferred to a lesser place, Midlands Prison, and now he's demanding his own cell. So that's the state of play. A little overview this morning on what's going on in Ireland. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, Gemma is going to jump in with another story here. So please don't go away fast, packed, fast and loose. That's what we are here on TNT Radio. Be a part of the conversation. I want representation I can trust. Have your say. Biden isn't doing enough. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, Gem, are you having fun this morning or what? Well, firstly, I would just like to say to Natalie, get well soon. But I'd also like to say to Natalie, thank you very much, because I really enjoyed that last hour. And it did go incredibly quickly. And I was thinking, oh, I can't step in. I can't fill Natalie's shoes. I'm not saying I have filled Natalie's shoes, but I did really enjoy that last hour of sparring with you uh, of the news. It was a nice change for me on a Monday. So get well soon, Nat. But thank you very much. Your loss was actually my gain today. And uh, we hope to look forward to having you back tomorrow. Yeah, and a huge thanks to Gemma as well for stepping up at the last minute and also for uh, Joseph Robertson, who's going to be joining me in about uh, eight minutes too. He's jumped in at the last minute too. But that's that's how it works here. This is live radio and live TV now, which is incredible. Uh, no pre-records, no edits, no uh, changing things around, at least during this part of the show here. Uh, we try and do what we can to deliver you guys the best, most informative, uh, interesting conversations. And I think we're succeeding in doing that, but we're still working on it. We're always working on making things a little bit better so massive thanks to you Gemma and of course Natalie please get well soon rest that voice up of yours and hopefully uh, she may be back tomorrow 
we will see. Uh, Gemma, you've got a story here uh, from uh, Palestine. Palestinians are calling for a global strike on Monday to demand a Gaza ceasefire. So uh, this is following on, I suppose, a little bit from the, the last story we did in the last hour. You know, we're talking about Oxfam striking coming up to Christmas because of cost of living. Now we want uh, Palestinians are causing for a global strike, everyone to go and strike uh, to bring attention to the business uh, in Gaza at this moment in time. What do you make of this one? Well, I haven't really um, brought this one to the table because of the politics, you know, of Israel-Palestine, you know, just reflecting back that comment uh, from the chat earlier that, you know, maybe I'm not on the side of Israel. I'm not particularly on any side. I do find it very divisive. And mm -hmm. I do think that's part of this control agenda to keep us at each other's throats. We can agree to disagree on the Middle East as much as we can agree to disagree on any issue. But I have brought this to the table because it, it's social media again. And obviously, as I dipped my toe into the murky water of X, um, I'm interested into how social media is being used to globalize this uh, issue and 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 um, uh, what's the word? Uh, mobilize people around the world actually into acting. So um, yesterday, Lebanon announced that it would be having a strike in its universities and schools uh, and public spaces, all public offices, as a result of the um, uh, U.S.'s position on the UN ceasefire vote on Friday said, right, we're going to, as a, as a protest, we will have this general strike. And then that's escalated today um, as a breaking, a breaking story for Monday is that all across social media on X, um, that they want to get influencers and trade union activists and international people to call for a global strike today. Now, I'm not quite sure how this works. How do you have a global strike on social media? It, uh, they want people to, to kind of I don't want to use the word virtue signal in terms of the, this again, but it sounds like that. And it's like you want to show your support for the innocent women and children and elderly people killed in the airstrikes. Um, but you're doing it on social media so that we've got this strike for Palestine. But are is any buildings or businesses around the world actually closing apart from the ones in Lebanon? And it's this thing about social media, which you've alluded to a, a few times on the on this show. I've heard you talk about it. It's I remember you talked about once if if you go and see the film sound of freedom about child trafficking do you feel like you've ended child trafficking when you actually haven't you've just gone to watch a movie about child trafficking therefore you feel you've done your bit so if you're an influencer or an activist and you go on and do this global strike today in support of palestine do you feel like you've contributed to the peace effort in palestine when really all you've done is go on social media that's the element of the story i want to discuss not mm -hmm. the actual issue itself um it's that kind of um you 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 go on you make your mark your ego is satisfied therefore you've done your bit for global affairs i think that's where i'm trying to take this story in a bit of a clumsy way really um mm. I'm, I'm still reeling from the last hour but yeah over to you on this one rick i think Gemma. um and again it's not a criticism per se but because this digital age in which we live i think a lot of physical action in the real world has been substituted with online action and i know maybe some people are isolated they don't have a close circle of people that think the same way as they do and for many many people uh being online has been a lifesaver over the last two to three years because otherwise they'd have been completely uh, shut out and ostracized from society so i do believe uh, the online community has its purpose to play and i do believe it's a good source of you know spreading factual information but there's no substitute for uh real world action and again like you've just uh said about this strike you know what is this do they want people to just stay off uh social media for a day what difference will that make and it won't make any difference at all i remember years ago these 
get everybody to put black squares up on their uh, Instagram posts, standing in line with, you know, school shootings that happened in America. Didn't stop the school shootings from happening again. I think it was a virtue signaling exercise because it doesn't matter how much awareness you and I bring today to what's happening in the Middle East. It doesn't matter how much we dissect it down and break it down. It's not going to change anything that's actually happening over there. The best that we can hope for is that we give people a balanced uh, perspective on what's happening, provide them with some facts to keep them informed. But let's be honest, what can you and I do, for example, if we decide to stay off Twitter for the day or even take a day off TNT radio? It's not going to stop people dying in Gaza. It's not going to stop people dying in Israel. It's not going to stop people dying anywhere for that matter. But it does serve its purpose because we need to inform people what's going on and make sure that the truth is still being pumped out there. And I think that's the danger of this digital age, Gemma. Uh, it's a substitute for the real world. Most people would prefer to, you know, I see couples all the time in cafes, you know, old men and women sitting, looking at their phones over a cup of tea, not communicating at all. Kids are brought in and given the iPads, you know, get online. First thing people grab in the morning, usually it's their phone. The last thing they have in their hands before they go to bed at night is their phone. And they substitute real world existence for online existence. And I believe that's a dangerous uh, road to be going down, especially when there's millions, if not billions of us doing it. Absolutely. And there are millions doing this today because it is trending. It has been trending since I logged on this morning, this strike for Gaza. And I just thought, how is this How is this actually going to work? And I think as well, there is an element with people that, and I, I totally understand this, that you feel so awful in the face of uh, what's going on in the world. You want to make yourself feel better. So taking part in these big global things like today, this strike for Gaza, it makes you feel better. You might not be on the side of the Palestinians, or you just want it, want it all to stop, you know. And so you feel like by taking part and by putting things out, and by you know, one of the things they do want people to do is boycott. I think or picket the New York Times um, office uh, later on today in America. Um, but so by doing these things, you make yourself feel like, well, I'm doing something because that's part of this is making people feel so wretched about the state of the world, which is exactly what they want. They want you wretched and helpless and feeling terrible. That's how they've got you. Um, and so by doing this tiny little thing, I think people feel that they, they are making a difference. Unfortunately, as you rightly say, they're not. We're not. We're, we're really not. The globalists are going to do what they want. I mean, unless we all march to Palestine and the Middle East with an mm -hmm. attitude and tell everybody to stop, mm -hmm. you know, that's the only, what do we do? You know, millions of people go in and yeah. with, a, with a bad attitude and say, listen, governments, you've got to stop it because we don't like it. And even that probably wouldn't work. Um, so, yeah, I think there's we, an element of that there, too. So I don't know. We do that as I don't well. know. If we do that as well. If we did that, if we did all get together on mass, you know, say, okay, let's take positive action again. Think about it. All the one airstrike would soon disperse that uh, gathering of people that were marching on, uh, you know, Tel Aviv or marching on uh, Gaza. That would deal with that one firmly uh, and decisively. But yeah, I, 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 we just need to be worry that we need to be more active in the real world rather than just uh, simply trying to do what we can online. I think maybe a little bit of a mixture of both with a heavy emphasis on the real world stuff is what will change us and get us out of this mess that we're in at this point in time. But that starts with each one of us individually taking control over our, or what's in our hands rather than what's in our hands, i.e. our phones or devices taking control of us. So uh, let's hope, let's listen, let's do hope there's peace there. Let's hope there's a ceasefire. Nobody wants to see anybody getting killed, but unfortunately it is what's happening at the minute. It is what it is. And we will continue to keep you updated 
with any developments in that area of the world. Gemma, humongous thanks to you again this morning. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, get yourself a nice cup of tea before you jump back into the fray again with the wonderful James Freeman in the next hour. I'm Rick Munn. Uh, Joseph Robertson is waiting to jump into TNT Tower, so please don't go away. More just come here on uh, Locked and Loaded. Don't go away. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14, and I watched her struggle. But MDA helped her get the best treatments and care, and they also helped kids like my buddy Ethan. My name is Ethan, and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Okay, uh, we're motoring through the R here mightily on Locked and Loaded TNT Radio. It is Monday, the 11th of December, 2023. Uh, just before I welcome my next guest to take the stand, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God. Uh, a few messages in the live chat, uh, just asking a few questions. Kevin Duckworth said, uh, where's Basil or what happened to Patrick and Basil? Nothing, they're still around. Basil is still working with us uh, behind the scenes at this moment in time. I think Patrick is traveling at the minute. Don't quote me in that one, to be honest. I don't know where he is, but he's he's still around as well. Just a lot of people are moving around, doing different things at this time of the year. Uh, Singsby said TNT has changed uh, a lot since October the 7th, since the Middle East conflict. Maybe it has. I can't speak. I can't agree with that in terms of what I'm doing. I like to think that what I'm doing has remained pretty consistent uh, since the day and hour that I started TNT. I'm trying to keep a balanced overview on everything that's going on at the world, working on facts uh, rather than speculation. And of course, just giving my opinion on it, which you can feel free to agree with or disagree with. But maybe uh, for people that listen through at the course of the day, uh, there's different things are changing. Of course, listen, people's opinions are going to differ. They may not line up with yours, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because you obviously have the option to give your opinions on the live chat or 
to call in on the open line show. The lines are open. You can speak your mind as freely as I can here in TNT. So please uh, do that if you are given the opportunity. So I want to take this opportunity to welcome uh, my guest for the hour, a chap by the name of Joseph Robertson. He is a reporter for the Epoch Times based in London, and he's jumped from the frying pan of the Epoch Times into the fire of TNT Radio this morning. Big thank you to you for joining us at short notice. Joseph, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, Rick. So, yeah, good to be here. Lots to discuss. Um, what a day in politics. We'll see where it goes, but always willing to speak the truth. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, literally, we have nothing planned here. I have a ton of stories that I've highlighted to, to bring up throughout the course of the hour. I'll pitch it over to you, actually, Joseph. Uh, you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on. What's striking you today after the course of the weekend about uh, what's happening on the world stage now? I'm keeping an eye on things as well. What What's your focus uh, going into this week here uh, with the work that you're doing with Epoch Times? Well, of course, the big focus here in the UK is um, Rishi Sunak about to be grilled by this so-called COVID inquiry uh, today at 10.30. Um, so that's coming up shortly. Um, for anyone who likes to watch people stumbling over their words, that will be something to tune in live to. Mm. Um, and of course, we've got this big vote on immigration policy coming up, which um, you know the government is facing a bit of a rebellion on over here. Um, and those are the two stories that I'm going to be keeping my finger on, certainly going through the first part of this week. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do, actually, to take us up to the half-hour mark, let's look at this, uh, what's going on with the COVID inquiry, and then after uh, the news headlines at half past 10, uh, we'll dig into a little bit about this whole Rwanda issue, because that's something that's been going on now for the best well over a year. This was originally uh, thrown out there around about last summertime. The concept of this Rwanda deal was put out there. Of course, they've had uh, road bumps there with the European Court of Human Rights. They've blocked it. Is it on? Is it off? Is it happening? Is it not? We'll cover that after the news. But the COVID inquiry, are they just paying lip service to this to make it look like they care, to make it, they'll hold their hands up and apologize. They'll say, we're sorry, mistakes were made, things could have done. Could we see any prosecutions from this uh, or is it just uh, a sham? Well, I think the real issue is, you know, you've got a, a trial organized by what I term as the blob, talking about issues that, uh, or errors that were made by the blob. And trying to blame this on politicians who, let's face it, are only in for a term or two. Um, not to say that the politicians didn't have a massive handle on what was happening at the time. Some of them made bad decisions, some of them made better ones. But the reality is that this is uh, a cover-up from the entire apparatus um, looking from the outside in, in many ways. Um, you know, there's not a lot being talked about in terms of real evidence. There's not a lot being talked about in terms of real data. There's not a lot being talked about in terms of models and policies that should have been deployed, such as the Sweden style. Um, and they come up early on in the COVID inquiry and then it quickly got brushed under the rug. Um, there hasn't been a lot in terms of real evidence. It's just been a lot of talk about who did what. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you not find, uh, 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 Joseph, that basically there's an old adage that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission? A lot of what they did in terms of closing down churches, for example, closing down schools for the best part of two years. You know, we went through world wars. This didn't happen. We went through all sorts of infections and diseases in the past. This never happened. Could it be a case now, whereas they're they're playing it like, I'm sorry, uh, we got this wrong. We could have done things better with hindsight. That's one aspect of it. 
But then they have another aspect uh, where some uh, people like Gover saying uh, we should have actually locked down harder and sooner. They're doubling down in this position. It seems to be there's a lot of mixed messages coming out from this. Well, absolutely. You know, we've had um, early on, we had um, people like uh, Matt Hancock and others sort of trying to pass the blame off onto the scientific advisors and Boris Johnson doing similar more recently. But a lot of what they're saying, as you just said, is is to do with why we should have followed the evidence quicker rather than whether or not the evidence was the real evidence that we should have been following in the first place. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of debate about that. We've had a couple of dissenting voices on it, but they're few and far between. And the questioning is very much uh, what I would I would call bias questioning. It's 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 leading questioning. It's um, very legalistic. It certainly seems like a prosecution more than a trial in many ways. And that doesn't put people in the best frame of mind to tell the truth. I would suggest that a lot of people are playing defensive operational uh, politics here rather than actually wanting to assess the evidence because they feel threatened by the KCs who've been grilling them. Um, and that's kind of a natural human response, I guess, regardless of what you think of them. Uh, they are going to feel like they're on the back foot, like they have to say the right thing. And also, I don't think the public's uh, opinion is really being listened to. I think there are plenty of people who are unhappy, as you said, with the lockdown of churches. There was a recent report, I think, from the Catholic Union, which surveyed um, a good couple thousand people um, and public opinion is very much of the belief that that should never happen again, that religious freedoms were trampled on, that people's right to expression was trampled on. There was those horror stories of people being arrested for praying and all that kind of stuff. Those things just aren't being addressed. So I don't think what's coming out in this inquiry is what the public really wants to hear. They want to hear about what was happening on the ground, those people who are suffering from fines, who are suffering from different things that just aren't being looked at now. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, you know, the, the one thing that people were hoping for in all of this was, you know, a lot of people were paying for uh, justice and you know, we'll want to see justice. We want to see people arrested. We want to see people doing time. You think about Matt Hancock, for example, what he literally got away with murder uh, in the Medazalam cases, plus the fallout from lockdowns, you know, the massive increase in mental health issues, suicide rates going through the roof, domestic violence rates going through the roof, you know, uh, child abuse going through the roof, all these things. Uh, there's a terrible danger that these things will people will never be held accountable truly for them and actually serve time but you never know uh the 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 outcomings of this or the uh, the findings of this inquiry will be made public in due time as we watch it so you know i'm not holding out for any justice there uh, joseph but maybe i'll be proved uh, wrong on that one so we've got to take a quick break news headlines we'll be back in about 30 seconds we'll talk about this rwanda setup because obviously it's uh, very prominent at this point in time a lot of people talking about it so don't go away we'll be back for more of the same here on tnt in just a minute go go what the hell is this? Breaking news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Israel has been accused of manipulating the media by allegedly staging the mass surrender of Hamas fighters in Gaza. One of Australia's largest retailers, JB Hi-Fi, is being sued, accused of charging customers extra for benefits they already received for free. At least half a dozen people are dead following a series of powerful tornadoes in Tennessee. And there's been another clash in the South China Sea, with Philippines and China both blaming each other. 
Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab, or Getter? Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Okay, I'm really happy to be joined live this morning on Locked and Loaded by uh, Joseph Robertson. He's joining us from London, reporter with the Epoch Times, touching a little bit on the so-called COVID inquiry. I also want to turn our attention to what's happening with the Rwanda proposition. Joseph, I remember last summer, I think it was, they first uh, put this uh, offer on the table to fly people to Rwanda, set them up in B&B type accommodation, maybe provide them with a little education and a job when they got there. Question is... Why Rwanda? Now, a lot of people asking the question, why Rwanda? Why not just stop them coming to the UK from France, mostly in the first place? And even when they're in London or they're in uh, the coastal areas of Britain or Ireland or Wales or wherever it happens to be, why Rwanda? Why move them all the way down there? Uh, what's the reasoning behind that? Or have they even given any reasoning behind that? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, Rwanda doesn't have the best record. You'd have thought the human rights experts would be up in arms about it as a choice of, uh, of location, even within Parliament. But, um, I mean, one point before I go into the intricacies of, of Rwanda itself as a choice, but I think you know what we're looking at here is um, a policy that doesn't do much, um, regardless of what side of the debate you sit on. I mean, I think there's a backlog now of over 47,000 people uh, waiting to be transferred somewhere or to have something done with them in terms of processing. Um, and the most we could send to Rwanda per year is about 500. So you'd be you'd be waiting a long time to see a, a real diminishing in those numbers of, of illegal immigrants that we've got waiting to be processed. But I, I had an interesting conversation with, uh, with an MP last week, and this will come out in a piece that I'm writing actually later today. Um, but we were talking about why, why Rwanda was the choice that was made. And he had a lot of reservations um, about Rwanda. Um, there's a lot of people in, in the Republic of Congo uh, warning, um, you know, that their, their almost neighbours, Rwanda, have, have been harbouring terrorist operations over there, that they've been, um, you know, largely run over by Chinese agents, that they are supporting um, a, an organisation called the M23, which is designated as a terrorist organisation. And, and interestingly, a lot of MPs have been, um, you know, courted really by Rwanda since the genocide over there. Um, they've been asked to be involved in humanitarian projects, building schools, teaching English, lots of delegations being taken over there to be, to be wined and dined. So there's a clear kind of consensus from the Rwandese government to really play, um, you know, operation, let's tell the Western world there's nothing wrong here. Um, and it's a little bit concerning that there hasn't been more scrutiny on this. You know, this was coming from a well-respected MP in the House of Commons. Um, and it's quite concerning that no one's really looking into this stuff beyond the headlines. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, geographical location as well. Um, I've been down in that part of the world quite a lot, actually, uh, down uh, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania area frequently over the course of about 12 years, coming and going, doing a little bit of uh, work there. And what I'm seeing, uh, you mentioned DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, the eastern part of the DRC is an extremely volatile area. Uh, there's a lot of violence. The Second Congolese War over there has literally uh, claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not a million plus people as well. That's bordering on to 
uh, Rwanda, as you mentioned as well, the, their uh, history uh, between the Hutus and the Tutsis back in uh, the genocidal days of 94-ish. Uh, you know, think about it, 800,000 people killed in the space of about 100 days over there. You know, there's a genocide museum in Kigali, and then people are then being bussed over there. It's a, it's a volatile area. There is peace there at the minute, but, you know, it's also... Uh, uh, sit, sitting beside Uganda and Uganda uh, up in the northern part of Uganda as well in the Luero Triangle is also a very volatile area. So it's not exactly what you would call a calm and a stable region to be putting uh, people into, especially given the fact that, you know, there was a genocide in Rwanda because people didn't like people from other groups within their country, you know, back in the 90s. So they killed, you know, 800,000 of them in the space of 100 days. Maybe won't bode well uh, if something like that was to happen again. Absolutely. And I mean, and the reason why I touched on the MN23 is obviously because they are uh, a terrorist organization basically within within uh, the Congolese side of things. And they're being so, so-called so harbored. This is the accusation being made by, by the Rwandese government, in a sense. Um, they're being given territorial access. And this is, you know, what the what the Congolese government are claiming. Um there is a lot of there's a lot of stuff over there that we just don't understand over here. I don't think many people have a real background or a history um, beyond knowing that a genocide happened in Rwanda. I don't think they really know the intricacies of what's still happening today and why it matters. Um, and of course, the other thing as well, um, which was mentioned in my conversation with this MP, was that there were no other real options put on the table. Um, well, why were we not looking at a kind of menu or a list of different places that could be um, you know, scrutinised and, and thought about in the House of Commons. Um, one one suggestion that he made was was Ascension Island, where we control pretty much everything that happens. You know, it's a British territory. There are other territories we could use. I've heard from reform candidates that they're planning on thinking about, um, you know, Cyprus as an alternative, using one of the military bases over there. There's all these kind of suggestions being thrown around, perhaps some more feasible than others. But the fact that there was no kind of menu or list of nations, that it was very much just Rwanda and that's it, suggests, I mean, you know, I couldn't put my own opinion across it, but, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. a little bit of lobbying going on. Mm -hmm. There has to be, my friend, there has to be, because even uh, if they were going to put them somewhere, you know, on the equatorial line or in eastern part of sub-Saharan Africa, Kenya would have been the perfect example to do that because they're a hell of a lot more uh, developed and a bigger nation and arguably have a lot more land that they could have put refugees into. So I would have thought Kenya would have been the most obvious choice for that or Tanzania or even Uganda itself. But Rwanda, just because of the size of that country, it is a very small uh, place and it's literally surrounded by volatile areas. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a strange one, but I would say lobbying has uh, been, been paid a huge part in that. And of course, who knows what incentives were on the table there for the Rwandese government to actually take these people in and obviously provide uh, lodgings, accommodation, and shelter for them for a period of time. There must have been a lot of money has exchanged hands uh, for that one too. So interesting take on that one. And I think, like everything else, time will tell why Rwanda. But as per now, we are just uh, examining examining the various options there. Uh, I want to move on, uh, Joseph, uh, to something else that I read here this morning. Uh, talking about uh, WEF has predicted, the World Economic Forum has predicted that their war game scenario, Cyber Polygon, uh, will occur before 2025, i.e. most likely during the 2024 election year, which is 
the incoming year of 2024. Now we have the next step in their lead up to their false flag attack in the form of predictive programming. Uh, a Netflix movie has been produced by Obama, apparently, uh, starring Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke called Leave the World Behind, uh, depicting them going on vacation right before a cyber attack happens, taking down phone, internet, and all technology systems. Is this a precursor to what will happen? And we know the WEF uh, war game, the COVID scandemic back in 2018, I think it was, or 2019, uh, before it really hit in 2020. Uh, the, the cyber attack thing hasn't really taken off us, but yet it's been in the background. Do you think uh, this is giving us a heads up effectively, notifying us that be prepared, something nasty is going to happen technologically wise in 2024? Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, we've been waiting for some kind of blackout for a long time now, since the Cold War. Um, and this is just a kind of escalation on people's fears. I think that, you know, it could be Russia, it could be Iran, it could be one of these nations who deploys, you know, something that knocks out all our electricity. We know that technology is available. It's been readily available for a long time. Um, yeah, the, the WF has a long history of, of producing things that happen, um, of creating videos that come to fruition. Um, so should we be cautious about it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know that it's going to happen just the way that they say it does. It very, very often doesn't look like that in reality. Um, but what we can tell is that if they're planning for it, you know, we should we should probably be listening. Um, we There is a lot of instability at the moment, whether or not it would be a malactor on the side of the WEF or whether or not it would be a legitimate attack from, from a foreign nation. We should be preparing ultimately for there to be no electricity at some point, for there to be an outage. Um, for there to be a lack of access to currency, digital banking, all this kind of thing. I think that's been predicted by experts for a long time now. Uh, it does seem a little odd that you've got someone like Obama involved in a project like that. Uh, we know that his friend David Cameron is now back in mainstream politics over in the UK. Um, and there are a lot of connections between uh, between movements like that in politics very often, uh, whether it's lobbying. I think a lot of this is to do with money. This is what people need to understand. You know, People come back because of money. People do things because of money very often it's all money that's at the heart of it. it might not even be that they're planning something deeply terrible it might just be that they want to capitalize and profit that's what we saw all the way through covid uh, a lot of politicians a lot of malactors trying to capitalize and fill their pockets yeah it's uh it's you know it's part of the arsenal i think uh, you know where you have the lockdowns you have uh you know people becoming dependent on uh, what did you call them? The furlough payments, uh, getting into that mindset of working from home, not had a catastrophic impact on city center businesses. Obviously, then people don't want to return back to the office again. So a lot more work is being done remotely. And of course, if you're working remotely and your office is shut down and there is any kind of outage, either of electricity or internet connection, where does that leave you? Uh, if the internet was to go down today or if power was to be cut in Australia today, this whole station would shut down. Maybe they've got backup generators I would imagine to cover that, but imagine it in the event of a worldwide uh, cyber attack with the internet, uh, banking would cease, uh, online appointments would cease, all sorts of things would cease. And I think that's uh, a lot of people would actually fear that because we've become so dependent on tech and our connectivity to the internet simply to function every day. Uh, the more we move away from, you know, just living off grid or as far off grid as we can to dependence on uh, electricity and the internet connection. I think we're leaving ourselves very vulnerable as a mass of people for what may be coming. 
down the line. So uh, we're going to take a little break, another little break here, uh, Joseph. So uh, bear with us and we'll be back in about two minutes. I have some other items that I want to talk to, with you about before the top of the hour. So please stay tuned for more here on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. It's a truism that bears repeating that everything the left says is either a lie or is based on a lie. Take, for example, the whopper that we need to eliminate beef cattle in order to save the planet from global warming. Even the University of California Davis knows how ridiculous this is. A report they recently issued says that laboratory-grown beef poses a 25 times greater threat to the environment than traditionally raised cattle. How can it be that we need to replace the pasture with the petri dish in light of this? Because facts don't matter to the left. They never let facts get in the way of pushing their agenda. And what is that agenda? It's control. As the godfather of globalism, Henry Kissinger said, who controls the food controls the people. That's what getting people to eat bugs is all about. That's what getting people to eat frankenmeat's all about. Control, not the environment. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. Rick Mon is locked and loaded on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Okay, we're coming into the last stretch of the show here this morning on Locked and Loaded. Hopefully you people are enjoying the content. Uh, leave us a thought, opinion, a message, uh, criticism, feedback, whatever you like in our live chat, which can be found at our website, tntradio.live. And of course, from there, you can listen in live or you can watch as we're being video streamed out on uh, all major streaming platforms like YouTube, uh, Rumble, Odyssey, etc. And of course, our recorded shows are all available to listen back on on Spotify, on uh, Apple Music, and on our website, tntradio.live. Now, I'm speaking with Joseph Robertson this morning, who's very kindly joined me at the last minute. He's a reporter for Epoch Times, based out of London. Joseph, there's a story here uh, that's a little bit uh, close to home. I've had some of these people on as guests on my show. It's a group in the UK called Vibs UK, Vaccine Injured and Bereaved uh, Within the UK, Battle for COVID Vaccine Injury Compensation has reached new lows. Uh, Claire Hibbs, uh, who's been a guest on the show here, is a victim of AstraZeneca's potentially fatal blood clotting disorder, VIT, which stands for Vaccine-Induced Immune Thrombocytic Thrombocytopentia, uh, was told by a top neurologist, give yourself a pat on the back. You took one for the team. Can you imagine that? Her life has effectively been wrecked because of this job. She's now trying to take, uh, along with other people, AstraZeneca to court over this and to be patronized like this, to be told to pat herself on the back for taking one for the team. Is that the kind of language you would expect from a top uh, neurologist uh, at an inquiry like this? Well, absolutely not. And I mean, I think the most astounding thing within that legal claim was uh, the fact that uh, it said that the absolute risk reduction concerning COVID-19 prevention was only 1.2% overall. So to be told that you've taken one for the team when that's the the sum total of your efforts uh, while you're suffering with life-threatening debilitation uh, is probably not the language you want to hear. 
Um, and there's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of this dumbing down over vaccine injuries. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this if this case manages to go further and whether or not it leads to a government payout. Because ultimately, of course, these vaccine manufacturers had indemnity during the pandemic. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not we get some more attention from the government if they do have to start shelling out on this kind of thing. Well, the thing is, uh, there are some compensation payments have been paid out, but you have to prove, well, obviously someone either had to have died as a direct result of these jabs or that you're a certain percentage disabled, so they have their own way of grading you. You have to be at least, I think, it's 60% disabled before you could qualify for any payment. But any payments that have actually been made, uh, I think, are in the region of £120,000. Now, that seems like a lot of money. If somebody was to hand it to me today, you know, it's uh, you could do a lot with it. But then again, what could you really do with it over the long term if, for example, your husband or your wife has died at age 30 and their income has gone for effectively the next 30 years? You're left paying a mortgage. You've got bills to pay. You've got kids to, to raise up. The amount that is actually being paid out is almost like a slap in the face also if you equate that out over the yeah, length of someone's working life, isn't it? I mean, it amounts to literally 20 quid a week over the course of somebody's working life for someone that lost their husband or wife maybe in their 30s. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think as well, um, the reason why this case is slightly different is because it's coming from a group. And I think that's what's lending more hope perhaps to people and why they're taking it so seriously. Um, because once you get, you know, class action being taken by a group of individuals, it becomes newsworthy. And it's not just isolated incidents of single payouts, which might take you know months or years to actually follow through on. This is, this is quite a defined consensus from a group of people that got together and have got serious, you know, considerable legal backing um, to actually go for the company responsible. And that's why it'll be interesting to see whether or not the government steps in to kind of defend one of its prime manufacturers of, of, of the British vaccine. Um, because, of course, there's been a lot of talk about how we had the best vaccine rollout in the world and how all the politicians are so keen on promoting this as one of Britain's great triumphs during the pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're willing to take the, the punch to the gut that suggests it wasn't all that. Yeah, at the beginning of all this too, I think we're coming up to the third anniversary of the first jabs being given. I believe it was in December of 2020. So it's actually three years now since the first ones have been uh, introduced to market. And of course, uh, Hancock at the time, who was the health secretary, made a huge fanfare about the Oxford AstraZeneca job being the first one out of the blocks. Of course, it was a British product. They were super proud of that. Getting it into people's arms, take your job. Well, you know, things will open up again and we'll all get back to normal. Obviously, that didn't actually happen. But the AstraZeneca product in particular uh, was slowly withdrawn from use uh, throughout Europe. And then within the UK, remember they were told, well, actually, if you're over 40 or under 40, you shouldn't really be getting this. And then it was under 30. And then all of a sudden it disappeared. Uh, there wasn't such a hullabaloo about the removal of the product the way there was when the product was actually introduced. That in and of itself should set alarm bells ringing with many people. Like, where is it and why is it not available anymore, given that it was lauded as the great savior of the world at one stage and, uh, you know, pioneering tech from Britain. Yeah, and absolutely, you know, more recently, we've seen this this drive from the government to push another couple billion into funding for future mRNA projects. And this is going far beyond just human vaccines. This is going into bovine products. This is going into food engineering. This is going into a wide range of different areas. And, you know, you've got one of the inventors of the mRNA 
uh, technology, Dr. Robert Malone, who's a good friend of the Epoch Times, who's been, uh, you know, calling for this this technology to be pulled. And there's no discussion going on over whether or not this really had the effect that people talk about. To me, a lot of it looks like marketing. You know, my background before journalism is in marketing and um I see a lot of the hallmarks of what happens when you've got a failed product and you're trying to ship off the last little bit of it. Um, and that's always concerning. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. But I, I can remember uh, when I started looking into this in detail, uh, there was a lot of reports in Europe, for example, that various European countries at one stage, I think about 23, 24 countries had suspended, not banned, but suspended the use of AstraZeneca products pending investigations on blood clotting. But at the one place that it was never suspended, I believe, was the UK. And I also believe it was never actually picked up and used in America. They were favoring uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and also uh, their Johnson & Johnson product. So it's an interesting one uh, in that I think and believe that they would just l- like nothing more than this to just dry up and blow away, become a thing of history. But when you have Claire Hibbs and uh, Alex Mitchell and the Vibs guys uh, actually taking them to court, do you think... Uh, they could have some success in this. I mean, if they have the right legal representation, if they if they they, they can present this uh, case to the uh, the people making the decision, could we see AstraZeneca taking the task for this? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I in an article I did uh, a couple of months ago, I spoke to one of the the guys who actually helped AstraZeneca apply for their vaccine license way back when. Um, and he is now a massive skeptic of everything that's happening at the moment. And he's been warning against uh, something else called point of care manufacturing, which is essentially where nurses and doctors can put together a vaccine or a similar kind of medicine at the end of its schedule within the hospital or within the pharmacy where it ends up. Um, they can you know, put together all the different organic pieces of that and actually turn it into the end product. And he's warning that, you know, this is unskilled staff doing this kind of thing. By the by, another interesting topic perhaps to go into, but he's warning now as well that AstraZeneca are just, uh, you know, not at all regulated in the way that they should be, that there's been stuff going on behind the scenes, particularly with the MHRA that's allowed a a rapid rollout of vaccines without too much oversight. Uh, And obviously this point of care issue, which was something that happened during the pandemic, meaning that sometimes you're not even getting the end result as the product that you started with. So there are a lot of different factors at play that, that raise red flags. And I think with evidence and testimony like that um, from people who have been close to the company, uh, you know, you could be seeing quite a, quite a scandal brewing. But then we have to remember that it wasn't that long ago that Pfizer was being sued for the largest criminal fine in history. Um, and of course, they managed to keep their license and keep suing um, their vaccine technology over a couple of decades after that. So we have to be wary as to what results will actually come from this. And that's why I say the government's role in it is really important to scrutinize. You know, if the government really takes the side of the company on this one, um, it will be interesting to see what the backlash is. It will. And yeah, you mentioned uh, Pfizer and of course, Johnson & Johnson. I've paid huge fines out about, you know, carcinogenics and their baby powders, but yet they're still flogging that stuff uh, over the counter. And people are, of course, still taking their jabs as well. So uh, it, it seems to be people either just don't want to accept the truth or they bury their heads in the sand or it's buried so deeply they never actually find out what it is hence you know these jobs are still going into people's arms even sadly as we speak and in the uk you know the nhs have a, a christmas campaign on here get your uh covid booster get your flu shot and neither uh spraying uh flu shots up the, the noses of kids in school as well i don't know about you i mean like i'm 
probably a good bit older than you are, Joseph. But do you remember uh, being, uh, you know, snorted, uh, snorting flu mist back in school? Or was it even a thing back then? It was never even considered when I went to school back in the 80s. Uh, but now it seems to be par for the course. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I was fortunate enough. I had uh, a skeptical parent, shall we call them. So they didn't... Um, they didn't allow me to touch any flu kind of jabs or anything like that. But certainly I do remember, you know, being offered that kind of stuff when I was way back when. Um, and I don't I don't think that this is I don't think this is good for kids full no. stop, regardless of whether or not you agree with the flu vaccine. I think this this kind of germophobic atmosphere that we're beginning to build where everything for kids full no. stop, regardless of whether or not you agree with the flu vaccine. I think this this kind of germophobic atmosphere that we're beginning to build where everything is solved by a vaccine you know you can't even catch the common cold now without it being fooled something which sounds more like it came from a lab i mean let's face it at the end of the day covid19 was a strain of the common cold sure it was you know genetically engineered by all accounts and there were some different theories as to how that happened and why it became stronger and more potent at the end of the day coronaviruses have been around for hundreds of years we've known about these things for a long time um it's one of those things where you know flu by any other name doesn't sound as sweet and i think we're kind of on the back of that uh where everything's now engineered into a fear opportunity i think we live in a, in a very germophobic culture that doesn't really understand holistic medicine anymore that doesn't really understand how the body works um and we've just been you know pushed to take all these different things that can actually change the way our body adapts, the way its autoimmune response adapts, mm. which is dangerous to say the least. I mean, there's hardly any testing on this stuff. You think as well, uh, you know, just listening to you talking there about, you know, uh, engineered this and uh, mRNA technology, that a lot of people, you know, uh, uh, it, this ignites debates, you know, it, do germs exist? Do viruses exist? Was it a lab leak? Was it not? Uh, we need to get to the bottom of this. Is what's important in all of this, not the fact that, and just to back up what you've just said, the end result, the modus operandi of this, the last three years has been a transfer of control and wealth, predominantly away from, uh, you know, working class and middle class people up towards uh, the upper classes or the, the, have, the haves in society away from the have nots. And we're seeing more and more fallout from this as they continue to push, for example, for digital identities, continue to experiment with CBDCs, uh, which if they get their way will really mean control for everybody who can be disconnected at the push of a button. Uh, is that not really the premise modus operandi for all of this? It's actually control rather than, you know, uh, you know, killing people because, you know, depopulation is a thing as well to talk about culling populations. Absolutely. But the reality is they need to leave some people alive to control. Otherwise, uh, who does all the, the grunt work? Well, I mean, the first paper in the world to really throw light on the aim of the CCP was the Epoch Times. And this is something I can talk about uh, in, in, in a lot of depth, because, I mean, the, what we're seeing is the export of the China virus. And by that, I don't just mean that this virus is from China. I mean, all of the stuff that goes with it, your credit control systems, your CBDC, the way uh, they want to implement facial recognition or surveillance passports. This is straight out of the Communist Party of China's playbook. I mean, this is their bread and butter. This is what they do. You've got companies like uh, a company that Rishi Sunak is associated with, Infosys, who a big Indian company who've been doing a lot of work with China on building their social credit system. You know, all of these companies who have stakeholders in, in a lot of the process that was happening during the, during the pandemic was to essentially enforce a rollout of, of a 
uh, if we want to call it a pack of digital products that looks suspiciously like a social credit system. Um, and so when I talk about the China virus, I'm not just talking about the virus itself, but the wave of ideology that rolls out from the CCP into the Western world as a way of doing business, as a way of uh, creating hegemonic control for um, global institutions, as a way of centralizing currency. All these things are what we should be really wary of, not death, not, uh, you know, pandemics, not uh, not wars that are going to kill everyone, yeah. because ultimately those things are outside of our control. It's, it's more about our yeah. social apparatus that we should be looking at. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And, you know, the more time I spend looking at this, the more I realize there's so much futility in arguing over points that don't actually have anything to do with what the end game is as far as the globalists which is, which, who are concerned, which is control and power. So whether or not it's a real virus or it doesn't exist or they do this or they do that, the fact is people were locked down, people were injected with uh, experimental mRNA technology, lives were lost, continue to be lost, the country's still in an economic catastrophe, and on and on and on it goes. So the fallout from all of this is very much there, irrespective of what the original uh, trigger point for all of this is, which is, think, is what you guys have been covering, as you rightly said, in uh, Epoch now, uh, since the beginning of all this. We're actually out of time now, Joseph. Uh, I wanna say again, big thank you to you for stepping up to the plate at the last minute. Joseph Robertson, uh, a reporter with Epoch Times in London. Huge thanks to you, my friend, and uh, welcome back anytime on Locked and Loaded, by the way. And please stay tuned for more here on TNT Radio. James Freeman's coming in after the break here, so don't go away. Uh, stay tuned to TNT Radio.